Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated, and where practical support is available to all Aboriginal women who are currently experiencing family violence or have in the past. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler. The answer is always yes. I've departed from normal format this week to invite the hotline's very first man to be our guest big sister. Sisterhood is a concept, people, not a gender binary. Teddy Dunn is an independent director and dramaturg and non-binary trans man who grew up on Ghana land and now lives in Nam. He is a speaker, host, writer and conversationalist on topics such as gender, sexuality, culture and why Dolly Parton is on his phone lock screen. He's also a very old and dear friend of mine, which is a bonus for my life, but also serves as a good disclaimer for listeners that if it appears I'm assuming an intimacy in our conversation, it's because that intimacy already exists. Teddy Dunn, welcome to the hotline. Clementine Ford, thank you very much for having me. I'm honoured to be your first man guest. (laughs) You've actually done um, my Conversations with Men series before as well. You are correct. That is true. Which was a beautiful intimate occasion that, uh, you know what, we snuck that one in just before the start of the first lockdown. Is that right? Mm -hmm. What has happened to time? It's funny because that was in March and as we all know, um, as we all know in March, the month of March was approximately six years long. It was. And then it feels like, to me anyway, it feels like things have kind of sped up since then, but that could just be because all time has blended into one day. We are just living one day. One day over and over again. But also it doesn't even feel like night is real. It doesn't feel like anything is real. Everything is a construct. I do feel, I was thinking this the other day that um, particularly now, obviously you and I are both in Victoria, so we've headed into the second round of lockdowns, Mm. Um, which, you know, by the way, if you're listening outside of Victoria, don't be too smug because I feel like this could be coming for everyone. This is kind of the world that we live in now. It's it's just entering in and out of lockdown, you know, liberation and coercion. Or, or you know, as Thomas Poyo, I think you say his name, um, as he wrote in The Hammer and the Dance, the idea that 
in being in lockdown is like being under the hammer and then being out of it is like being in the dance, but we're just going to be moving in and out of these states for a while because, spoiler, it's a global pandemic. Yes, and, it, you know, it only takes one um, horny security guard to uh, to bring everyone to their Outrageous, knees. Outrageous, honestly. I mean, Quite I kind outrageous. Of, I kind of, in my more generous moments, I can understand that if you're – actually, no, I don't even want to go down that path. <laughs> People will attack me for that. Um, <laughs> but here we are. We're back in lockdown. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that for a lot of people that's very anxiety-inducing, particularly because they do seem to be – you know, the border control is a lot stricter this time around, even within Victoria. Mm. So there is a sense of – um, you know, and I and I say that acknowledging that we have the extraordinary privilege of of having the relative freedom of still being able to leave our home to have exercise or to go to the supermarket. Obviously, the residents of the nine tower blocks for the last week have not had that privilege. That you know, the, it's important and vital for us to reflect on classism and racism and how that's being wielded within this pandemic. You know, I was telling you just earlier that I saw a photo yesterday. I mean, apart from everyone bloody leaving Melbourne to race down to the Mornington Peninsula to their holiday homes, (laughs) someone shared a photograph on my Facebook yesterday of uh, their parents live in Mornington Peninsula and there was a whole crowd of people standing on the jetty just to watch the whales at sunset, you know. So and there's no police down there keeping an eye on that no I mean I find I it's it's really tricky isn't it because I think um I was reflecting on this the other day about how we we don't have we've got we've got a lot of information about how to we don't actually have a lot of information on how to wear masks or any of that sort of stuff but we have messages telling us stay away from other people um but I don't know and maybe this is because we don't have the information right but how do you do that kind of as a human being? Like it, mm. it's it's really hard. And you do get kind of worn down for not being able to, you know, hug people or see people. and Absolutely. Um, and which isn't to say that it's not incredibly infuriating that people can't do it. But it's <laughs> also... I, I do kind of, I do have empathy for for people who go uh, you know and I've done it myself you know when I've gone maybe I can just hug that person because I haven't mm. had anyone hug me for six weeks you know mm. so there is I try and have compassion I agree uh, it is frustrating I mean I was saying to a friend the other day that I have the terrible this will probably come as no surprise to a lot of people who know me who follow me and certainly no surprise to people who hate me but I have the horrible prissy pony club tendency of you know the the former teacher's pet to um be very withering towards people who are not doing things that I only learned how to do yesterday. <laughs> and yes. I've recently started being very conscious about wearing disposable masks. Mm-hmm. And I look, I don't even want to get into the debate of whether or not masks are, you know, valid or not. For mm-hmm. me, I feel like it, it's, a, it's a way that I can show, particularly essential workers in the community, that mm. I care about their health, mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm, you know, part of their community too. So whatever, leaving that aside... Mm. This week, I've started wearing disposable masks when I need to go into a supermarket or I went to the petrol station the other day. And <laughs> looking around, and I'm like, all these people just maskless. It's just horrifying. <laughs> so I can understand that, you know, it's very easy to sit there and say, uh, you know, why can't people just not touch? But mm-hmm. when people find it very difficult to... Um, 
I guess, see themselves as being as responsible as everyone else for measures that are needed to protect a community. Of course. And I think, I, I, you know, I think all of us are, are um, uh, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to even say guilty of that. I think it is just a human thing. And then when, you're conf- when you are confronted with it and you're able to accept that you're, you know, not perfect, which is, you know, always a kind of a shock. Um, How rude. I know. Every single time I realise I'm not perfect, I'm like, oh, I had learned that before, but somehow I've forgotten. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, when it comes to, um, uh, to whiteness, you know, to racism and when it comes to um, patriarchy and all of these things, you know, we're all um, kind of mired in them, in, in humanity basically and in being imperfect. Um, and I think at the moment it's really hard to be not perfect as well because people are watching you for perfection mm. and you're bound to uh, to fall down at some point. Um, but you're right. So then we, we kind of go, well, I hugged my friend, but um, when this other person hugged their friend, that was, that was naughty. But when mm. I did it, it was because they were upset or it was because, you know, I'd been good up till that point or... Yeah, or to bring it back to the very present issue of racism. Mm. I mean, racism is an ever-present issue. But to bring it back to that, the number of people who will be endorsing, you know, very strict totalitarian police responses to the tower blocks, which, Mm. of course, disproportionately involve people of colour, migrants, low-income workers. um, You know, obviously there's classism involved as well. The people who are able to point to that and say, well, they've done the wrong thing or this is a necessary tactic because we need to get this virus under control mm. and yet are not uh, – firstly, not saying anything about people flooding weekend markets or bloody Northland mm. or High Point, mm-hmm. but also are not scrutinising their own behaviour within those spaces. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, no one is going to do this perfectly in the same way that mm. there is no perfect um, – anti-racism there's no perfect anti-patriarchy there's no perfect anti-transphobia there is no such thing as as those things um obviously you know the pandemic itself it's it's almost a metaphorical way of describing these things right um but it also is actually happening um so it's you know conflating a couple of things that are a bit different but um there isn't a perfect response there's only good and better responses Mm. and not very good responses you know um which is a great uh, rule of thumb for life. Really. I think so. Yeah, to try and to 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 not and look, it's really difficult because perfectionism, um, and I'm a hopefully recovering perfectionist myself. Um, you know, it is. I think Brene Brown talks about it as the the ten ton shield to protect you from vulnerability. You know, mm. the idea that if you can be perfect, um, then you'll never feel shame. You'll mm. never be ashamed of of something that you've been. Um, and I think that, you know, there's an irony, right, that then perfectionism itself becomes something that you're ashamed of, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you're like, darn it. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, we, we think that if we, can do, if we can do everything perfectly, um, then we w- we'll, we'll never have to feel that discomfort of, being, of falling short of our own values. Mm. Um, and I think really... Uh, I've tried to to get to a point where I understand that I will always fall short because my values are very high. I have very, you know, I have very high expectations for myself morally um, and socially and 
uh, the society I live in. And you're a man. And I'm a man, exactly. So obviously it's much lower than than women's. You know, just do some cleaning every now and again and, you know. No, for listeners, that's not true. Teddy does have very exacting moral standards. <laughs> I do my best. I do my best. But um, but I do think that, uh, yeah, a big part of it has been trying to accept that I can have those standards but not be perfect in them. Um, and that's allowed me to learn more. Mm. I think about that often as well, uh, and maybe that's a function of getting older too. You know, I sadly, think. I think it is true that your views don't temper as you get older, but that you become more open, I suppose, to the possibility that uh, op- more open to nuance. Mm. I would have been, um, if I met myself at twenty-one today, I would be. So full of disdain <laughs> for, you know, how, just how dogmatic I was about so many things. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, being young and dogmatic is quite beautiful. You know, that's how you kind of you, – you carve out this very sort of crude standard of, of being and, uh, and of living and of viewing the world. And then over the years, you chip it away at it and you carve it out into something that's, that's hope, hopefully got some, um, some more delicate lines mm. in it. Uh, and I think that striving towards goodness, this is something I talk about uh, a lot now, rather than the act of being good, but mm. striving towards goodness is a better way for us to think about how to be in the world. Mm. Because you can't fall short of trying to be good. And it doesn't no. allow you, if you if you acknowledge, well, look, I'm just trying to do right. I'm trying to be good. Or not, not be good. I'm trying to work towards goodness mm. is how I prefer to frame it then you don't provide yourself then with the easy excuses of being able to give yourself a pass and say, oh, well, I, I'm not perfect, so fine, fuck it, I'll just be the worst. <laughs> it's true. It's that old thing of, you know, when you're, um, when you're trying to, um, to, to change any habit that, that if you are exacting and per- perfectionistic about it, um, then, you know, if you're trying to quit smoking, for example, um, which I shamefully am not in, during this pandemic, even though it's a respiratory illness. So, you know, complicated human beings, yeah. You are a complicated human being. I am indeed. It's what makes me so fascinating. Um, but uh, you're trying to quit smoking and you go, okay, I, I'm quitting cold turkey, which I think I, it actually probably is the – maybe this is a bad example. But, you know, you go, I'm quitting cold turkey and you go, I'm going to be perfect. I'm never going to have a cigarette again. You have one puff and you're like, well, now I'm a smoker again. Mm. You know, and, and I think – uh, it's really, it is really easy to fall into that thing of of going. If I can't be perfect, then I won't be. Then I won't try. And I won't even try. Um, it's this defiance almost, and that's part of what makes it such a good uh, shame, uh, shame um, shield. Mm. Is that um, if you don't, if you don't try, then you can't fail either. Mm. So either you can be perfect, and you won't fall, you won't fail. Or you won't try and you won't fail. I want to pivot on that now mm-hmm. uh, and talk about the opposite of shame. Yeah. Teddy, what are the things that you're proud of? Ooh. That's Isn't it funny how that's a really – that's quite a hard question because um, – I'm sure you could talk to me for three hours about all the things that you're ashamed of. I absolutely could. I absolutely could. Um, I am proud of 
uh, I'm proud of what I have learned or my capacity to learn, I think. And I, and I don't just mean that in terms of facts, although I am proud of that too. I find factoids quite interesting and pleasing. And I collect them, like some people collect stamps, you know, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Um, I'm, proud of, I'm proud of being able to, to learn from circumstances um, and learn more about myself. I'm proud of the mental health gains that I've made in the last, well, I've, my whole life really. Um, I'm really pleased about that. I'm really proud of that because that was a lot of work. You know, getting to a place where you're um, more more capable of of managing than you were before, managing your life and and coping, which I think is really just wisdom, right? Like, I think wisdom is the is the ability to cope mm. um, in a lot of ways, and I'm certainly much better at coping than I was before. So I'm really proud of that. Um, and I'm also proud of my therapist for that because she did a really good job <laughs> on that. Um, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of um, my relationships, uh, my friendships, and um, my relationships with my with my family. Um, and that, uh, and I'm proud of my. I think I'm proud of my. It kind of gets back to this thing we were talking about about. Um, compassion and generosity that I really had to learn that for myself in this mental health thing you know getting better with with, with my mental health was you know the the mantra uh which I always hated from my <laughs> therapist was you need to learn self-compassion you need to be kinder to yourself and what that actually led to was me being much kinder with other people mm. much kinder and more generous um and understanding um one of the things that I ask uh, men to do when they are invited to, to participate in conversations with men is to address whatever it is that they say for eight to ten minutes, address it to a photograph of themselves as a child. Mm. And I find that that's a very powerful thing to ask men to do in particular because there is this process of, um, you know, again, going back to the idea of shame, there is a process of shame that is instilled in young boys that uh, is ultimately used um, as a weapon against them and is is used as a weapon against others. Mm. You know, that, that so much of violence and um, harm and disconnect can be rooted or is rooted in shame. Mm. And thinking about the, the opposite of that and what you're talking about, kindness – one of the things that I've found effective in my own therapy journey is to, um, and it's, you know, it's a very typical thing. I'm not going to like blow anyone's minds here, <laughs> but it is important for us to continue to come back to this and remember it is to address ourselves as if we're the child within, you know, to mm. think about who, if we were, if we were to say the, the negative self-hating, self-doubting things that we say to ourselves now that we say inside our brains, if we were to say them to, ourselves manifested as children mm. that would seem monstrous to us yes and it is monstrous it is um and it's often those voices um the 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 critical voice is not um is not one that you want to that you identify with either you know it's not just that you are the victim of those um 
those thoughts as a child. It's also that you then become someone who says those things, even if it's just to you. Mm. Um, and I don't want to be that person mm. who, who says those things. So I, when I have thoughts that I don't like, I name them. Other, I have different personas in my mind for different types of um, uh, patterns of thought. So, for example, I call my hypochondria Sandra. Um, and Good I way. say, Sandra is telling me that I'm going to get COVID from, you know, touching this door handle inside my own home, <laughs> for example. Um, and that helps, right, because it's then it's not me. I'm not thinking that. Mm. It's somebody else saying that, which is, you know, I think – that's of use. I call my uh, my anxiety voice who says that I'm not good enough, Darren, because mm. I imagine him to be a kind Such of... Such a Darren thing to say. Yeah, that's right. Well, I started it right because I was sort of... I was I was like, oh, you know, having that internal dialogue of um, you never do anything, you know, you never, you never... You're not self-motivated, you're not blah, 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 and that kind of fun thing to think. And... Um, and I thought, actually, if if a, if someone was saying this to me, the closest type of person I can imagine is a kind of um, a stereotypical bloke sitting on a deck chair in his, like, singlet with a tinny, um, criticising his partner for not doing enough when he's not doing anything mm. either. And he would be called Darren. And he would be called Darren. <laughs> so now I imagine him... Uh, this is... No offence to any Darrens listening. Darren, I'm sure you're lovely. Um, not all Darren. Not all Darrens at all. Um, it's just a particular – I think it's something to do with the double R sound um, that just feels quite right about it. But and, and yet conversely, Sandra also sounds like the name that you would give to someone who would say, just be careful of the doorknob. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I do it completely appropriately. My depression voice is called Lorraine as well. <laughs> but there's a um, – yeah, I think I think it is – yeah, I, as soon as I figured that thing about – it's not just that I'm hearing it, it's that I'm saying it. Mm. That really helped me. Um, in the same with self-care, like I think, you know, often I, I, I found it really uncomfortable to be like, I am worthy of receiving self-care and care and love. I found that really hard to do, as you can tell. it's gross. It is gross. <laughs> and I'm like, I feel deeply... It's not gross. No, I feel deeply... Unco- I felt deeply uncomfortable about receiving mm. that stuff from anyone, including myself. And then I flipped it and I was like, nope, I like to give people care. I like to make people lunches. I like to mm. write people nice notes. I like to read poetry to people. If I'm the only one there, I can do it for myself. Mm. And it's an mm. act of doing rather than an act of receiving. It doesn't make it any easier to receive those things from other people, though. No, you know, it doesn't. I so strongly relate to what you're saying because I love caring for people. I love making things for them and, you know, little touches and stuff and showing my love in that way. You know, that's mm. definitely one of my love languages is acts of service. Mm. Um, but in receiving it, mm. I, I'm probably pretty good at doing it for myself but if other people were to do it for me, I just, I, I, I can't, as you can tell, I'm struggling to even talk about it. <laughs> the level of disgust I feel mm. for someone else taking that time to care for me. I mean, mm. God, that's something I, I need to talk about with my therapist. I'm pretty sure I know where it's coming from. Mm. Thank you, childhood. Childhood. <laughs> uh, we're going to try and answer some questions now. Yeah. But 
Teddy, I, you know that I love you and I could talk to you for hours. Will you come back and do round two? Yeah. Because there's so many things I already uh, regret not being able to cover just in this one session. Of course. We could do a whole series together, I think. Let's do it. But for now, let's do some questions. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Teddy Dunn are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two people who've got a little thing called life experience and who are too overly familiar with the shame spiral. Heartbroken at Work writes, I have been married to my husband since I was in my mid-twenties. I'm now 40. We have children together, but last year I had an affair with a colleague. Two months in, my husband discovered this and the affair ended. I've been grieving it ever since and I feel at a loss, particularly as we continue to work together and continue to have a quote-unquote friendship and feel very compatible. We never intended to leave our partners for one another, but at this point I feel that he is a better fit for me. I think he may feel the same way, but I don't see him breaking up his family for me. I'm trying to make things work with my husband, but quite frankly, a lot of my old, very passionate feelings for him have now dissipated. He's forgiven me and really wants us to work. I just don't know how long to give it. I can't decide whether to leave in the knowledge that I probably won't be with the one I love and will be alone, or stay and keep trying given that what we once had was actually awesome. The man I was having an affair with says he wants to work on his marriage but he is also set on us being friends, even though that friendship is a real grey area for me. And him. We've tried not speaking, and it simply doesn't work, as we have to communicate as colleagues anyway. Please help. Oh, little sister. Mm. Uh, My heart breaks for her. Yeah. That's really hard. That's really hard. Um, I don't think there are any bad people in this scenario. There's very look. I'm going to be one of those people who's like, "There's never bad people, <laughs> only bad situations." But I, well, that I I have to disagree. That I think that you know, particularly in my experiences in online dating, there are definitely some <laughs> married guys out there who are trying to keep things on the DL. Yes, no, that's that's completely right. But I think certainly in this case, um, so. Um, firstly, I would really recommend a book called The State of Affairs by Esther Perel. Oh my God, I love her. She's, she's an extraordinary, um, person. She's a relationships therapist. Um, if you haven't heard of her, she's just brilliant. She's got a beautiful podcast called Where Shall We Begin? Where Should We Begin? Um, and where you essentially listen in to couples therapy and it really gives you a, a, a sense of, um... Both how unique every relationship is and how everyone is kind of the same, which is very, um, I find, really uh, reassuring. reassuring. Really reassuring. Oh, dear. Okay. So I completely understand how how heartbreaking this must be in, in multiple directions. Mm. Um, and... As you were writing, and I, I was—I was always listening to Clementine read your letter. Um, 
I was thinking, oh, maybe you could do this. And then you said, no, I tried that and it did work kind of thing. I think you are... I think you're very lucky in a lot of ways that you've got these two people who you love and who love you. Um, so there's that. So you must be um, lovely <laughs> and lovable. Um, I, I feel like it exposes the truth that... It takes a lot of us a long time to realise, particularly those of us who, which is all of us, who've grown up in a culture that tells people, but, you know, women especially, Mm. that, um, and I'm speaking now relating to Heartbroken at Work, that Mm. the primary goal that we should strive for is to find someone to love us. Yeah. Um, And hopefully who we love too, but but primarily that they pick us. Yes. and that we have children with them and we create a family. And that there is this sort of um, even joked about sense of relief. Oh, thank God I can stop dating now. When actually that's a really flawed way of looking at humanity and mm. love and relationships. Because, you know, people talk about failed relationships or the marriage broke down. Or, um, you know, Taylor Swift who's like 25 years old, 28 years old maybe. And she's had like 20 failed relationships. It's like she's in her 20s. Mm. Give the girl some fucking space. Um, but to me, the she's had a very successful, you know, Well, she's love had affair. two. And then she's had another one. And she's had that, two. Yeah, that there's this – the truth of the matter is not that we all need to be finding the one person that we bunker down with for the rest of our life, but that we will have, hopefully, if we're, with any luck, many love affairs mm. in our life. And some of them – as sounds the case with this, some of them are going to tear our hearts to pieces. Yep. And, you know, I think I, I – so so Esther Perel, I mean, you should listen to her because she will explain this much better than, than I will, but she talks about this idea that um, we are trapped um, between in – in a contemporary model of romantic relationships. We expect so much from one relationship um, – that often is in antithesis. So we want safety and we want excitement, for example. Um, and those two things are, it's, she says it's a paradox that you need to manage. And she also talks about uh, relationships um, often needing what she calls, I believe, the shadow of the third, the third person. And I think what it is is it reminds you that you're a whole person um, and that what you have in a single relationship, for example, in your relationship um, with your husband, you have one way of being, you have one kind of relationship script, you have one role that you play for him, or maybe you have a few roles that you play for him, and maybe there's a part of you that's not being expressed in that relationship. And that's not um, at all a... Uh, that's not to, to denigrate that relationship at all. It's really difficult to manage these paradoxes um, between excitement and security, for example. Um, Particularly when security is so important, um, when you've got children together, for example, when they're your partner in business as well, for example, or you have a mortgage together or, you know, security becomes really important and security isn't the sexiest thing in the world. Um, 
Well, and they're also uh, hopefully maybe a deep friendship. Exactly. So and, and you don't want to hurt them. No. And I don't – and I think, you know, there's, there's so much to this question. Maybe if it were me, if I were in your position, I would be wondering what part of myself was being expressed with this person that I worked with in that affair. What part of me was I rediscovering? I don't think affairs are always um, reflective of the rem- of the relationship that you're. Sometimes they are. Sometimes it's a warning sign, right, about something that's lacking in the relationship that you need. And sometimes it's actually not much to do with that. It's more to do with you, mm. the person, what you need to discover and what you need to reconnect with. My first girlfriend, um, when we were falling in love, uh, and I actually wrote a piece about it. Um, Yesterday, and I've started doing this thing called the Lockdown Diaries. I love how I say that. I've started doing this thing, like I've done one. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully, I'll continue doing them. But one of the things that, uh, because we were long distance for a while, so we wrote a lot of letters to each other. And one of the things that she said to me in one of these letters was that falling in love with someone is really discovering yourself. Mm. And I've always thought about that, that, and it speaks to what you're saying, that it's not necessarily a a reflection on, um, you know, a dearth of anything in your marriage although if you've been together for 15 years and you've had children then yes of course some of the excitement has gone Mm. but it may just be that you're rediscovering parts of yourself that have been subsumed in the role of wife and mother Mm. uh and and what society and the people in your life sees of you because of those things Mm. and what i'm hoping is that um what i'm hoping for you is that rather than um, attaching that that part of yourself that you re, you I hope rediscovered um, with this relationship with your colleague, rather than attaching that to him, um, realize that it, it is actually it's part of you. So it's not with him that that he, he doesn't have the monopoly over you being able to express that part mm. of you. Um, having rediscovered it, it's yours. It doesn't. It doesn't belong to him. It doesn't belong to your husband either. But you could utilize it perhaps in your relationship with your husband. You could bring it back and go. Oh, I found this thing again that you used to love so much. I found this thing, or I found this new thing, and I think you might like it. Mm. And that's really hard to do, right? It's really, really tricky um, because there's jealousy and there's feelings about where did you learn this? You know, it's kind of like I don't know if you've ever had. I love her, and then returned to them years later, and they have new. Um, they 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 do different things in bed, and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I wonder who taught you that. You know, like it's that. Thi- you know, that's a sort of silly example, but well, it's, I don't know if it's silly or not, but it, it, it's a specific example about something more broad, right? Which is that, um, ironically, we need our partners to grow and change so that we don't. Um, well, we need our partners to uh, be mindful of always bringing something new to the scenario because the yeah. scenario itself that we're in with them, there will be constants, you yeah. know, particularly if you have children, particularly, as you said, if you have a mortgage, there will be a day-to-day grind. Mm. So it's, it's uh, beholden on all of us to make sure we bring something new and exciting to a situation that is otherwise 
at risk of stagnating. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not making any judgment on uh, this little sister's husband. It sounds like he's very invested in maintaining the relationship and he's forgiven her. Um, but, you know, it's there's no easy answer to this. It's I, I hear it and I feel sad because I, I feel her heartbreak. Mm. You know, she's heartbroken over this man that she loves and that yeah. she wants. It occurs to me as well uh, through our conversation and rereading the question that I think that there's a fair degree of um, projection, romanticism, you know, magical, wishful thinking. Uh, And I don't say this to be critical of uh, heartbroken at work at all because I've certainly applied this to love affairs that I've had. But, you know, number one, you can't move forward with your husband if you if the spectre of this romantic possibility is still there in your marriage. If you're still thinking about what might have been with this man, if you're still romanticizing him and fantasizing about him and daydreaming about the possibilities, which I know you are, <laughs> then you will not be able to move forward with your husband because of course he 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 can't fail. He can't um hope to live up to whatever it is that you've established in your mind. Mm. So the first thing is that you need to decide whether or not uh, if you if you want to work on your marriage at all, you need to st- stop contact with this guy. And I know that that will be extremely painful. And maybe, you know, obviously you can't cut it out completely because you work with him, but you can't be friends with him because every sliver of cake that he gives you from the friendship pie <laughs> is offering you another taste of how good he could be, you know? He's, it's like he's the best drug you've ever taken and you keep wanting to get back to the hit, you know, but but you can't have it. He's saying, I'll show you the drug, but you can't have it. Um, and so you need to get rid of the drug. The second thing I would say, and I know that this may be extremely difficult for you to hear, is that I think what, that what you and this man wanted out of your uh, relationship with each other is very different. Um he said that he doesn't want to leave his wife. He wants to work on his relationship with her. I don't. I could be wrong, but I wouldn't even. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't even as you know noble as that. I think that he's very satisfied with having a wife who takes care of him, who takes care of the house, who takes care of the kids if they have them, and whatever he feels like he's missing in his life, like his eroticism or his like excitement. You know that he's got the old ball and chain at home. Uh, whatever he feels like he's missing, you fulfilled that purpose. And if not you, it'll be someone else. Um, mm. Maybe he does want to work in his relationship, but I wouldn't be surprised if what he's looking for is just a no-strings-attached dalliance that allows him to feel like a man, you know, ironically going back to what we were talking about before, allows him to feel like a powerful man in the world who's not being bloody nagged at home to pick his jocks up off of the bathroom floor because there's nothing that dispels... Uh, you know, male power more than a woman being forced to live with him. Um, <laughs> so I, I wouldn't expect, again, I know that this might be very dif- difficult for you to hear, but I wouldn't expect that he's sitting at home and wondering how he can be with you or thinking about what he's lost uh, by ending this relationship with you. He may be feeling like, uh, you know, things were getting a little bit too serious for him anyway. And this has been a convenient thing that your husband found out. Um, you know, that's just one one possibility and one take. 
And I would say that the fact that he can, he wants to continue being friends with you is indicative not of the fact that he, uh, you know, is hopeful that there may still be a romantic future for the two of you because he, he clearly has shut that, closed that door on you, but that A, he doesn't want to be the bad guy and B, he enjoys the way that you make him feel about himself. I think we all need to learn how to have erotic charge, be turned on, turn other people on and then be able to be like, and no. Mm. Um, and that that's not a disappointment, mm. that that's not... Uh, but it's part of the sexual frisson, you know. Absolutely, and I think... It's foreplay. It's foreplay. And, and sometimes it, foreplay lasts days. Sometimes foreplay doesn't even turn into sex. Sometimes mm. it's just flirting with uh, the barista mm. at the coffee shop and it's about your own thing, your own... Um, sexuality and eroticism mm. of going I just wanted to feel hot mm. it's got nothing to do with having sex necessarily I am I'm firmly of the view that you know flirting at a minimum is absolutely acceptable in all people's lives but certainly if you're in a relationship like this idea that you shouldn't flirt with other people because it's disrespectful mm. I mean don't flirt disrespectfully no but you know and don't don't flirt in a way that makes it clear that you're uh disrespecting your partner but like mm. far out you know a little bit of as you said erotic charge we really have to wrap this question up because okay. we've i'm already gonna have to edit the fuck <laughs> out of it uh, if you are listening to this just know that you missed about 30 minutes of really good conversation <laughs> but maybe i'll release it uh as a bonus um but yes in short uh, as teddy said you need to work on the erotic charge in your in yourself and also in your relationship and as i said I don't think that there's any benefit that can come from holding on to the spectre of this man in your relationship, even if you ultimately decide to leave your marriage. Uh, I don't necessarily think that he wants the same things that you want. And I, uh, I feel like those of us who've experienced that heartbreak, whether or not it's while we've been partnered or not, all know what what it is to have built someone up in, in our minds. And so just remind yourself and know know that he is not fully the person that you have imagined him to be and that, in fact, you've only seen a little part of him. He's not the answer. You're the answer. Exactly. Just a heads up to everyone that I'm reading this question out verbatim as it was sent to me. Uh, this is uh, all the descriptions in this are how the person themselves has described themselves. So, with that said, chaotic female asks, "How the fuck does dating in your 30s even work?" I'm transgender. I came out and began transitioning at 29. HRT or hormone replacement therapy turned my sex drive off for around two years, so I basically went from a boy in his 20s to a woman in her 30s. This was jarring in numerous ways, but none more so than when I'm trying to show interest in someone or even trying to meet someone. While closeted, sex was one of my many overcompensations while trying to fill that void of not feeling like a man. So this wasn't an issue before. I actually remember a male friend asking how to initiate conversation and confused, I just told him, you say, hi, I'm such and such. I suppose what I'm looking for now is more than helping to fight dysphoria with a side of machismo. I feel more confident about myself and my body than ever before, but my previous gusto now seems vulgar. Help. Ah, uh, 
Congratulations, little sister, firstly. Uh, I'd also just like to say as well to listeners that um, when uh, this question was sent to me, I responded by saying, well, I'm inviting Teddy on. Teddy's a trans man. How would you feel about a trans man answering your question? And they were very uh, interested and enthusiastic in the response because obviously some overlapping issues but also different perspectives. Completely. Um, Look, I could talk about this for a really long time and I think – there's so many elements to uh, to your question, chaotic female. Um, the first thing I want to say is the, that I don't think that uh, gusto for sex, that wanting to have sex is vulgar for women um, or for femme people. I like it when uh, women and femmes that I want to sleep with have gusto for sex, so I don't think it's vulgar at all. <laughs> I think it's nice. Um, having said that, I think... Uh, I think I know what you mean and I think um, to unpack what vulgar means maybe is, um, is is something for another podcast. We could probably do a whole hour on what is vulgar, what does vulgar mm. mean. But let's say I think probably what you've said here is that before your transition you were having sex for a different reason than you – it sounds like you are having sex for – now, I think the the reasons why we have sex are very complicated um, and I completely understand what you mean when you say it was it helped alleviate dysphoria because I have done exactly the same thing of um, using it as a form of numbing and also f- I think for you probably performing a kind of um, masculinity that uh, that you felt like you had to perform. Um, and I, I, I did the same thing, you know, in its inverse and also I was performing masculinity, so I had this sort of quite interesting kind of conflation of what sex was to me and what wasn't very much until I came out was uh, was for my own pleasure and for my own sense of self being a beautiful... Um, acceptable, adorable, pleasurable experience for somebody else. Mm. Um, that wasn't what I was having sex for. I was having sex for to, to prove th- something to myself a lot of the time. Uh, so the, so the, the, the reason for me wanting to, to have sex with people changed too. My, my reason changed. It sounds like because you're now in your own body in a way that you weren't before, now you're you're existing in a gender that you you feel that fits you properly. Um, you probably now want to have different a different kind of sexual experience as well, which might be why it feels vulgar mm. to to hit on people in inverted commas in the way that you did before, not because. I, I I don't know whether it's because um, men and women are judged differently on how they hit on people. I think they absolutely are, but I don't know if that's the actual crux of what this problem is. Well, I I mean, obviously from the outset, I uh, I'm cis. I'm a cis queer woman, but cisgender, so I don't really have the uh, well, I don't I definitely don't have the perspective to answer this question from um, any kind of trans lived experience. Uh, but I wonder, and I'm interested, Teddy, in your thoughts on this, I wonder if there is a 
um, you know, the, the final bit, I suppose what I'm looking for now is more than helping to fight dysphoria with a side of machismo. I mm. feel more confident about myself and my body than ever, but my previous gusto now seems vulgar. I wonder if that's a, a sense of, uh, as you said, you know, uh, hyper-expression of sexuality in women is not vulgar, but because the society we live in so strongly associates hyper expression of sexuality with masculinity mm. that there is a, a dysphoria again that comes from this that expressing herself fully sexually in the way that she is um triggers i suppose certain feelings or insecurities about uh, how other people will perceive her and how how other people may misgender her because of this mm. so what i think um she perhaps is really seeking is or maybe not seeking but perhaps what will be be beneficial is reassurance that of course yes you know her sexuality exists fully in um in simpatico with her gender identity and her gender expression and it's just unfortunate that the world that we live in has not presented that model of sexuality in women for her to understand that there's no deviation from there's no there's no difference from who she is and and how that fits within her because it's all it's all beautiful. I think that's a really good point. I think women are certainly judged in ways that um, for for having um, sexuality that is, um, you know, has gusto. Yeah. Um, women are certainly judged in a different, in a really different way. Than, that's active than rather than passive. That's right. Yeah, I I do think um, I do think that if you uh, and maybe this is also an age thing, right? Like if you reframe what sex is, um, it can make things a little bit easier in terms of how to – because the question is really like how do I crack on to people, right, basically? Like how do I get <laughs> – Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there's obviously specific challenges that come from being trans in a transphobic society. Oh, yes. But generally speaking as well, dating in your 30s fucking sucks. Uh, like it – Bites. Mm-hmm. It's hard, I think. And um, part of it, I think, is that um, we don't really understand what we're trying to get at. You know, we don't really – like, I, until I understood what I wanted, um, it's really hard to get it, right? It's mm. really hard to get what you want when you don't know what it is. And not in a sense of, like, I want a relationship or I want – Blah, blah. But like, why do I want to date or have sex or why? Mm. What what do I want? And what kind of uh, want do I want somebody else to have? I would imagine, in the case of this beautiful little sister and you, and similarly for a lot of trans people, that one of the uh, desired outcomes is to be able to experience love and relationship in a way that that it, where they're fully seen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think. So, you know, we, we have a lot of narrative around the danger of being trans and, um, you know, disclosure and uh, just as a side note, um, watch Disclosure, the documentary on Netflix. Fantastic. Everyone must watch it. It's brilliant and it's really enjoyable as well. But, um, you know, there's a lot talked about how, you know, it's dangerous for us to um, date and to be in those sorts of situations. And, I, d- I you know, I'm sort of pointing towards that and then saying I won't really I, – I don't think I need to talk about that very much because that's kind of a really strong narrative. I also think there's a kind of counter-narrative, right, which is that 
uh, I suspect that trans people, in our relationship with our bodies and with ourselves, we've we've had to um, examine the way that we exist inside of our own bodies mm. and we've had to become, in order to survive, much less judgmental of our own bodies and I think often by extension of other people's. So our capacity to um, make people feel comfortable and I think truly a good flirt, um, as we were kind of talking about flirting earlier, but a good flirt is somebody who makes you feel completely comfortable and and uh, and sexy and admired, um, and someone who and I think being a good sort of um, pickup artist in inverted commas, someone who who is inviting into a sexual experience is really someone who is non judgmental, right? Because when you're having sex with someone, you're incredibly vulnerable. All people are, especially women, especially trans people, um, but everyone really is quite vulnerable. People are going to see if you've got pimples on your bottom. People are going to, you know, hear if, you're, if your body makes farting noises. People are going to see, hopefully, your orgasm face. They mo- see your orgasm face, you know. With and, any luck. And most of us haven't seen our own orgasm faces. And Or if we have, if we've filmed it and sent it to someone, then we're like, oh, I bet, oh, I don't know, I don't know about that. <laughs> it's, it's always slightly awkward, right? I, I was actually chatting with um, someone the other night and we were talking about how you can tell when in mainstream porn you can always tell when a cis woman has a real orgasm yes. because it's very different from the way that it's performed. And I said it's uh, – for me the tell is always that they go very still and silent. Yes. And, <laughs> and Don't he, move. <laughs> and he said for me it's the feet. You watch the feet. Ah, and yes. the, the, the toes like, curl. The toes curling and the clenching. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, look, the the level of vulnerability that you have to have to have a good sexual experience, I mean, you know, you can be not very vulnerable and have a kind of boring one or have one where you perform well, in inverted commas, but that you're not actually in your own pleasure. But to be able to be inside your own pleasure, you probably probably things are going to happen that might be a bit embarrassing or might be things that we've been taught to have shame about. And what's really important is to be... I think to be somebody who people go, oh, you know, if if my if my vagina makes a noise with this person, I'm not going to feel like I need to crawl under the bed. Like mm-hmm. I trust them to be able to either laugh or go, that's hot or whatever. Like acknowledge it and and make me feel fine about it. That's the type of people that I seek to have sex with now, mm-hmm. um, and not because I'm trans, although that does play into it, right? Um, I need to. I need maybe need a little bit more comfort level with people than um, than cis people do. But then there's lots of reasons why people feel awkward about their bodies and like uh, and worried that other people will judge mm-hmm. them. So I think I seek that in other people, and I seek to be that for other people. And I think that being a trans person, for me anyway puts me in a position where I think people probably do feel like I'm less likely to be judgmental mm. um, of their, you know, pimple on their bottom or whatever. Like, and I, because, not because I also have things wrong with my body, but because nobody is perfect and nobody exists in a, outside of shaming. Mm. And my body is more easily read as being one that has been judged and is judged sort of publicly. And so I do need to have gotten to a point to still be living and existing where I can go, well, this is one, this is the one that I've got and I'm going to learn how to appreciate and love it. Mm. 
Mm. Um, which again, kind of coming back right back to the beginning of our conversation about once you learn self-compassion, you're easily, it's more easy to be compassionate to others. Mm. Um, that me becoming, uh, you know, grounded in my own body has made me able to um, appreciate other people's. So I suspect that um, if you're asking me how to how to express interest in sleeping with people, I think it's about complimenting people, making people feel like they are seen and they can be they can be vulnerable with you in a sexy way, in a way where um, you can just let people know that you would like to sleep with them, and it doesn't need to be in a vulgar <laughs> in a vulgar way. Mm. Um, and I think really the, the line for me is about, is it as easy to say yes as it is to say no to this invitation? Mm. Um, and is it something that, cause I think it, allowing somebody to say yes or no to anything, um, is also showing that you trust their judgment and that whatever they're decision is won't be judged from you. Um, so that would be my sort of general um, advice about how do you how do you flirt with somebody? Yeah. <laughs> but well, and to you know, again, as we wrap this up, uh, as we wrap this question up, um, I'd also just remind you that you are in stellar company because a lot of really fucking badass women in their thirties struggle. Oh with, yes, with dating because. Um, it's a wasteland out there. Mm. What what I would also suggest too is that um, uh, perhaps you do, there is no indication from this question either way. If you don't have a really strong queer community around mm. you and a really strong network of um, other people, whether or not cis or trans, although obviously I think that having a, a strong network of other trans people is, is really important, then finding that community I think is is essential because not only uh, you know not only does it completely broaden your dating prospects with people who interested in complexities and uh, you know beauty but also it will I suppose if if you don't have that community then I think that it it provides that um support network obviously you know and and um for me, what I'm hearing from this question again is that uh, it, that the transphobia that is so present in the society that we live in has long-lasting impact on people's sense of self. Obviously, we know that, but some people are still coming to that realisation, some cis people who don't understand how, how deeply woven transphobia is into the fabric of society and, and how much it impacts people's ability to experience very basic and beautiful human desires and human interactions um, or, to ex or to feel like they can experience them fully. Mm. Um, does that sound right, do you think? Yeah, look, I mean, transphobia, especially in the internalised transphobia, I think, um, and the fear that we've been given um, about what will happen to us, about how people will respond to us, um, and the way that people think of us as disgusting – um, you know, that that's not very nice to have in the back of your head when you're trying to flirt with somebody. It's not a very – it doesn't free you very very easily to be, <laughs> to be able to be like, 
because, uh, you know, part of flirting is being like, I value my own opinion of other people enough to think that me telling them that they're gorgeous will make them feel good and not feel revolted. Yeah. Right. You do have to have a kind of level of, of, um, of self-respect and, and not in a like, I respect myself and so, you know, but just actually respecting your own opinion mm. and, and feeling like other people will respect your opinion um, to be able to do that. So that, that is really hard. Um, and I, you know, I struggled with that too. I found that, that really difficult. Um, and that's part of what, um, you know, pride is about, is about finding the beauty, the true beauty in it and not in a sort of performed way of going, you know, trans, trans is beautiful is a really transformative way of talking about transness because that is not the messaging that we've been told. Um, which is, you know, why I try really hard to talk about how, about the, the value of the trans experience. And I do think that there are a lot of very hot trans people <laughs> that, um, like there's this meme that says, um, you know, the way you can tell if someone is trans is if they have a cooler than average name and if they're hotter than average, you know. <laughs> and I think um, to, to kind of re-engineer the narrative of trans is beautiful, that takes real effort and work to do. Again, you know, it kind of circles back to this shame thing. It's much easier to judge yourself. Um, and you well, yeah. Uh, sorry, just to interrupt. I just wanted to say that um, in one of the earlier episodes of the podcast, Jordan Raskopoulos was a guest and, you know, I've returned to this a few times. She was talking about the journey not towards acceptance but the journey towards pride. Mm. And there's a huge difference between those two things. Absolutely. Because accepting something in yourself is generally – we, we don't tend to accept good things about ourselves, do we? You know, mm. we don't go, well, I accept that. <laughs> I accept that I'm incredibly kind or yeah. I accept that I'm, you know, very I accept, talented. I accept that I have impeccable hair. Yeah, that's right. I, I will, will accept that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't think of it in those terms, right? And so, to, but we're proud of our hair, you know, yeah. and we're proud of our kindness and we're proud of our talents. And I think... Um, Again, it's just an interesting framing of transness as mm. a as a um, as something that you can be proud of is quite transformative um, because the way that we're taught about it, um, both through media and through um, often through the medical profession and um, and through therapy and sometimes from each other, is that it's a problem mm. that it's a that it's an illness that it's a um, in some places in the world, it's classed as a disability. Um, and that... Which brings up a whole new swathe of, uh, you know, narrative around ableism. Absolutely. Well. And you go, well, what does dis what does disability mean then if yeah. it's just something that, I mean... And why is disability perceived as bad? Exactly. And then you've got this really interesting, like... Um, thing of maybe it is, you know, in a social model of disability, maybe there is an argument to be made for that. But, you know, I'm not probably educated enough in those in those realms to be able to talk about the intersectionality between the two. But certainly we are taught that it is not, um, it is not something of which to be proud um, because it is something that needs to be either mended, fixed, 
in one way or another, either by, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say, why should I, why should I fund your mental illness? You need therapy, not transition, for example. Mm. There's that narrative. Um, or the narrative that you transition and then you're not trans anymore. Then you're just a normal person. Or that um, to, uh, you know, quote, unquote, do it properly, mm-hmm. that it requires, you know, a physical change. Exactly. Because basically what you're trying to do is make it so that you're not so trans mm. anymore. You're either you're, – you're, you're not within – you're not um, outside of the, ba- the binary in any kind of uncomfortable way for society, right? You don't, you don't exist in a way that challenges the way that we think about gender in ourselves. Um, so we're pathologized and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that in order to maintain the binary, we have to be ill in some way. Right? We have to be mm. wrong in some way. Um, Which actually just, uh, you know, touches on a point that I wanted to make about, I mean, apart from anything, it's a very white Western construct to see gender as this strict binary. Right. Um, but also I wanted to take this opportunity to say to cisgender listeners that the dating spectrum is so broad and there is so, as you say, there's so much beauty to be found everywhere that, you know, you may think that you have a particular type of person and that may not even be related to gender. It may just be that you like people with brown hair or mm. whatever it might be. But it's so reductive to sort of say, well, this is my type. I only date this type of person. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously we have particular things probably rooted in childhood that, you know, provoke certain physical responses from us Mm. you know i like men with beards sue me (laughs) um daddy issues (laughs) i like men with beards too but i also like you know women with uh, big hair and lipstick exactly you know lots of different things um and like why would you tell yourself if, I'm, if I want to be really crude and talk about dating as a buffet, mm. why would you say, well, I'm only going to eat from the cold meat section? Mm. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, everyone is entitled to have preferences, of course, but I think, um, you know, we're not um, – everyone is so Everyone is so different. Like the more I live, the more I'm like, gosh, it, there's so much variety in mm. people, you know. And the more you get to know people, the more particular they are and the more uh, nuanced they are. And I think when it comes to to dating trans people, you know, look, there's a lot of kind of complication with it um, in that we have – you know, what we call chasers, people who only want to date trans people for fetishization, you know, essentially. Um, and that happens for trans women and for trans men, you know, that there are people who are, you know, kind of curious in an objectifying way about our bodies. And, um, you know, I I mean, sometimes I don't uh, – I was going to say sometimes I don't mind it. I do actually mind it quite a lot in terms of – being reduced only to a body part in the same way that I always have not liked that very much. Um, Unless my body part is my hair, which I do put a lot of effort into. Mm -hmm. Um, Perfectly happy for someone to be attracted to me only because of that. Anyway, the idea of being, um, being reduced to one element of yourself. um, I'm sure everyone understands how kind of, uh, 
how challenging that is and, and how dehumanizing that can be. Um, so I don't really want to be sort of chosen as a kind of um, – as a rare item – of like someone to be like, and also I have dated a trans man, so I'm amazing. In so, you know, mm. so I'm open minded, and I'm, you know, you don't want to be the the person that kind of adds to someone's you know progressive credentials. Yes, I don't want to be a kind of. I mean, no one would call a trans a white trans person exotic, but there's a kind of um, but there's a kind of exotic, you know, in this yeah. in a similar way of how I think, um, you know, I've heard people of colour talk about, especially women of colour, talk about being exotic exotic, um, and kind of a, a way for people to be like, look how cool I am that I have got, you know, that I have slept with this person who's different to me, you know, and I think trans people have a, a kind of experience of that too. Um, it's just a fetishization, basically. Mm. Um, but also on this, by the same token, it's like, Every single person in the same way as I was talking about before, you know, every person's body is a bit weird. Every person's, you know, complicated and interesting and um, and has, you know, hang-ups and has, uh, has uh, quirks and has uh, eccentricities and um, little sort of pockets of themselves that maybe no one else has visited, little grottos and um, streams of the landscape of them that uh, – might be a nice place for you to visit. Um, and that, that grottos. goes... Grottos. Visit, visit the grotto. Visit. What I'm trying <laughs> to say to everyone is... is it's, it's just very humorous to put it like that. That's right. Especially a trans man saying, come visit my grotto. <laughs> um, it's an open invitation. Um, I'm sure. I, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think to, to kind of find the poetry in people, right? Um, and the, the, the beauty in, in people, uh, regardless of what your predetermined ideas of them are and should be and, and could be, um, that's what we're kind of aiming for. And I think trans people, because we exist in, in this, um, you know, it in kind of in defiance of this, of this binary and the way we think about things, um, I think we we often have a way of thinking about and existing inside of our own bodies and and inside of eroticism and inside of ourselves um, that can be quite beautiful. Mm. Um, and I think if you can find little sister that the beauty in that for yourself, um, then I think you'll find that sharing yourself and 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 being being open to somebody finding you attractive and adoring you um, will be much easier. And certainly the very opposite of vulgar. Exactly. You have been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. 
If you like the show and you would like other people to enjoy the show also, then please do consider rating and reviewing it because it helps to move the hotline up in the charts and gain a bigger audience. You can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline only available for download to subscribers. And uh, just a heads up, it's probably going to be some extended material from this episode because we have been speaking for almost two hours but you will only get one hour of that. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're Big Sisters and we've got you back. My guest this week has been Teddy Dunn, independent director, dramaturg, non-binary trans man, and might I say a very snazzy dresser. Teddy speaks about gender, sexuality, culture. We discussed a lot of those issues today and it has been... Really, really very bloody enjoyable to have you on the show, Teddy. And I I very much hope that you'll come back. I'm sure you will. Always a pleasure, Clementine, and any time. Is there anything that you would like to plug for the listeners? Where, the, where can they find you? What can they follow of your work? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at what have you done. Uh, where That's D-U-N-N. D-U-N-N, yes. What have you done? I... Uh, that's probably a good place to find me because I do sort of I, I do like to um, to give you some stories, some pictures of my cats, kind of queer content. If you'd also like to listen to Teddy's uh, episode of Conversations with Men, it is available for podcast. Um, it's uh, on Apple Podcasts. You can just find it under my name, Conversations with Men, and you can listen to Teddy's beautiful story there. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. Again. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.